Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company, and I hope you check out the website and give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date. By Reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Michael Cannon. He is the director of health studies at the Cato Institute. John Butcher is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. And we'll visit with Katie Rogers. She's the Vice President of State and Federal Affairs at the Foundation for Government Accountability. It is September the 10th, and on this day in 1833, President Andrew Jackson announced that the government would no longer use the second bank of the United States, the country's national bank, on September the 10th, 1883, or 33. He was used his executive power to remove all federal funds from the bank in a final salvo of what was referred to as the Bank War. The National Bank had been first created by George Washington and Alexander Hamilton in 1791 to serve as the central repository for federal funds. The Second Bank of the United States was founded in 1816, five years after the First Bank's charter had expired. Traditionally, the bank had been run by a board of directors with ties to industry and manufacturing, and therefore was biased towards the urban industrial northern states, Jackson, of course. Uh, the epitome of the frontiersman, resented the bank's lack of funding for expansion in the unsettled Western territories. He also objected to the bank's unusual political and economic power and to the lack of congressional oversight over its business dealings. Jackson, known as an obstinate British man, a man of common people, called for an investigation in the bank's policies and political agenda as soon as he settled into the White House in March 1829. To Jackson, the bank symbolized how a privileged class of businessmen oppressed the will of the common people of America. He made it clear that he planned to challenge the constitutionality of the bank, much to the horror of the supporters. In response, the director of the bank, Nicholas Biddle, flexed his own political power, turning to the members of Congress, including the powerful Kentucky Senator Henry Clay and leading businessmen sympathetic to the bank, Jackson. Later that year, Jackson presented his case against the bank in a speech to Congress. To his chagrin, the members generally agreed that the bank was indeed constitutional. Still, controversy over the bank lingered for the next three years. In 1832, the divisiveness led to a split in Jackson's cabinet, and in the same year, the obstinate president vetoed an attempt by Congress to draw up a new charter for the bank. All this took place during Jackson's bid for re-election. The bank's future was the focal point of a bitter political campaign between the Democrat incumbent Jackson and his opponent, Henry Clay. Jackson's promise to empower the common man of America by appealing to the voters and paved the way for his victory. He felt he'd received a mandate from Congress to close the bank once for all, despite Congress's objections. Biddle vowed to continue the fight the president, saying that just because he was scalped Indians and imprisoned judges does not mean he has the, his way with the bank. <laughs> On September the 10th, 1833, Jackson removed all federal funds from the Second Bank of the United States, redistributing to various state banks, which were properly known as pet banks. In addition, he announced that the depository in the bank would not be accepted after October 1st. Finally, Jackson succeeded in destroying the bank. Its charter officially expired in 1836. 
Jackson did not emerge unscathed from the scandal. In 1834, Congress censured Jackson for what they viewed as his abuse of presidential power during the bank war. Such an interesting story. Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States, one of my favorites. Well, on a bright Tuesday morning, 19 al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial airlines with the goal of targeting the United States. Two planes struck the World Trade Center and a third hit the Pentagon. The fourth plane crashed in Pennsylvania after passengers and crew retook the flight. In all, 2,977 people were killed in the deadliest foreign attack on U.S. soil. And, of course, thousands more were injured uh, severely. We remember this horrific day in our history and those who lost their lives on 9-11. We remember those who died in an effort to save others, and we will never forget. 9-11, 20 years tomorrow. President Joe Biden ordered widespread vaccination mandates on Thursday, demanding the private business mandate vaccinations for their employees. This is not about freedom or personal choice, Biden said during his speech at the White House. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. Reminds me of the statement by Benjamin Franklin. I believe it was Benjamin Franklin. If you give up uh, your freedom for security, you end up having neither. That looks like the path we're going down. Biden used a sharper tone against unvaccinated Americans, lecturing them for refusing the vaccine. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, he said. The president said he understood why vaccinated Americans were angry about the continued rise in cases around the country. Many of us are frustrated with the 80 million Americans who are not vaccinated, he said. We're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers, Biden said. Now, of course, this uh, is in defiance of the actual science that demonstrates that uh, people who've been vaccinated can get the virus too, and in fact, uh, can spread the virus, as can people who've been unvaccinated. But nevertheless, he doesn't let science get in the way. He noted the vast majority of Americans who are doing the right thing by getting vaccinated but he would make life more difficult for the unvaccinated. Biden complained that the unvaccinated were catching coronavirus and using up hospital capacity, he said. We cannot allow these actions to stand in the way of protecting the large majority of Americans who have done their part and who want to get back to life as normal, said. I'll just remind you, yesterday, Toby Rogers uh, quoted, he said, governments could have given uh, away vitamin C, A, D, Z, zinc, ivermectin, and hydroxychloroquine at stadium drive through sites and pop-up clinics and churches nationwide. He said life would have already been returned to normal, but health was never the goal because there is no money in that. That from Tony Rogers. Just a little aside here to remind you. The White House file plans to order the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, require vaccines for workers in health care facilities receiving Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement. The president announced in a sharp turnaround from his position last December when he told reporters he did not support a widespread national vaccine mandate. I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand it to be mandatory, he told reporters at the time. Well, I guess he's changed his mind. But Biden acknowledged that in his speech that the coronavirus pandemic was not going away despite his best efforts to fight it. We're in a tough stretch, and it could be the last for a while, he said. The president also called for entertainment and sports arenas to require vaccines to enter or show a negative test to event, at events, attend events. He repeated the vaccines were safe and that the government wanted to turn the corner on the pandemic. What's more, more is there for to wait for 
What more is there for to see, Biden said, noting that the vaccine received FDA approval, which of course is a blatant lie. The vaccines that we're taking has not been approved. It's still under a use uh, emergency use or date or, or mandate. The president also detailed the White House plan to require all staff in Head Start programs, the Bureau of in- Indian Education, Department of Defense schools, to get vaccinated. Although Biden did not try to mandate vaccines for all public educations, he called for the governors to require all state staff to get vaccinated. He warned state governors who threatened to oppose his more draconian mandates that he would use his executive powers to enforce them. If these governors won't help us beat the pandemic, I'll use my powers as president to get them out of the way, he said. He actually said that. He actually thinks he has that power, which, of course, he doesn't. Of course, he's speaking about our governor, and there's others, but Ron DeSantis, Asa Hutchison from, uh, I think it's Mississippi, Arkansas. Anyhow, Vice President Kamala Harris unabashedly defended abortion and said that the right to end the life of an unborn child is not negotiable during a discussion with abortion and reproductive health providers on Thursday. She met with providers from Texas, Mississippi, Kentucky, and New Mexico to discuss the impact of Texas Bill 8, Senate Bill 8, which otherwise known as the Texas Heartbeat Act, and other laws that effectively limit abortions around the country. She said, The President and I are unequivocal in our support of Roe v. Wade and the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade and the right of women to make decisions for themselves with whomever they choose about their own bodies and needless to say, the right of women to make decisions about their own bodies is not negotiable. I wonder if Joe Biden buys into that the way he's making it non-negotiable to mess with our bodies. Notably, Harris also commented on government interference and personal health decisions. The same day, President Joe Biden mandated Chinese coronavirus vaccines for businesses with 100 employees or more. People are able to make their choices without government interference for themselves. In terms of their well-being and their well-being of their family in consultation with whomever they choose, we are a stronger society, she continued. Well, I don't like uh, Kamala Harris much, but I think she's right about that. And I think what Joe Biden is doing is way overreaching his authority and his power. But Mr. President, stay in your lane. Administer the, the laws of the United States of America. You're not a health care official. Republicans nationwide are tearing into President Joe Biden on Thursday after he announced he would use emergency orders to force businesses with 100 or more employees to mandate vaccines or on a weekly testing. Forcing this and coercing people, I don't think it's the right decision. I imagine that you're going to see a lot of activity in the courts if they try to do this through an executive action. That, according to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, said in a press conference yesterday. The Republican National Committee said it intends to sue to block Biden's order from taking effect, and several House Republicans plan to introduce legislation to negate the order. Joe Biden told Americans that he was elected and he would not impose vaccine mandates. He lied, said RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, who added that she was a vac- pro-vaccine and anti-mandate. Many small businesses and workers do not have the money or legal resources to fight Biden's unconstitutional actions and authoritarian decrees, but we when his decree goes into effect, we will sue the administration to protect Americans and their liberties, said McDaniel. Good for here. So much more to talk about, but we're going to move on down to our first guest, William Yateman. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. 
We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best and building a new performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Katie Rogers from the Foundation for Government Accountability. Right now, we have with us William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. So uh, we've been talking for, I don't know, years now <laughs> about the, the infrastructure programs, and there are some new developments. Maybe you can tell us about it. Well, indeed, we're getting to crunch time, um, but first I'll just, again, as I do every week, just very briefly set the table. Um, we've got two infrastructure packages in the works. The first is the Infrastructure Improvement and Jobs Act. That entails $500 billion of new spending. It's bipartisan. It has already passed the Senate, which it did on August 10th, and it, and it pertains to traditional infrastructure like roads, bridges, broadband, and the electric grid. Um, the other infrastructure bill is a $3.5 trillion partisan Democrat-only package 
that includes everything imaginable in a progressive wish list. I mean, free college, free energy, you name it. Um, uh, but that, again, is a, a partisan bill, and it is proceeding on a procedural track known as reconciliation that allows Democrats to avoid a filibuster. Mm. Um, so those, that's the background. Where we are now is, again, crunch time. Um, the, we're, we're getting near sort of the November elections, and that is by when these measures must be done if, if Democrats intend to brag about them on the campaign trail, and indeed earlier. Um, so as, as we're getting to crunch time, pressure is increasing, and we're seeing fissures everywhere within the, the within Democrat caucuses in Congress. So we're seeing fights among committees as they're uh, putting together this 3.5, frantically, I should say, putting together this $3.5 trillion measure. Um, what we're actually seeing fissures between the House and Senate, between, you know, the House is complaining that the President Biden is demonstrating a bias in favor of the Senate that he used to serve in, so that's interesting. But by far, uh, the most important division is between moderates, as personified by Bernie Sanders and AOC, on the, I'm sorry, the Chief Louise, as moderates, as personified by Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema on the one hand, and progressives on the other hand, as personified by Senator Sanders and AOC. Um, in essence, Manchin, two weeks ago, we spoke about how he called for a strategic pause mm -hmm. on the $3.5 trillion measure. He seemed to be putting the brakes on his support for, for any subsequent spending more than the investment improvement, I'm sorry, the Infrastructure Improvement Jobs Act. This week, Axios reported that Manchin evidently is willing to go as high as $1.5 trillion on the Democrat-only package. Um, however, that was completely unacceptable to Senator Bernie Sanders. He, he told the press that already he had come down from $6 trillion to the $3.5 trillion measure. So we still have this gulf between the moderates and the progressives. And as I've said before, I'm not as hopeful as I was last week because, again, Manchin went from uh, tapping the brakes to suggesting $1.5 trillion more in spending. However, given the gap between moderates and progressives and given that moderates uh, seem to be completely unwilling to accept $3.5 trillion and progressives seem completely unwilling to accept anything less than $3.5 trillion, I remain hopeful that this can all fall apart. Well, from your lips to God's ears, it's, it concerns me deeply that um, uh, Manchin has gone from uh, no to, well, maybe $1.5 So it's So uh, that, that, that demonstrates to me that he's not on solid ground in his own thinking. Really concerning. Well, I mean, never forget that West, Trump carried West Virginia by 40 points. Yeah. So Manchin is definitely in the Democrat caucus. At the same time, however, um, I'm not sure whether or not the West Virginia electorate is with any more spending than in that uh, investor, the, the one that's already passed the Senate. Yeah. So what's hanging fire right now is this uh, debt ceiling. And apparently we've run out of money as of July 31st. Now, uh, Janet Yellen is using extraordinary measures in order to pay the bill. She's got uh, Campbell suit cams apparently in the backyard. She's pulling out some <laughs> some money from <laughs> different areas. But uh, it, it seems to me that this might be the one uh, the one area where the the Republicans would say, "Hey, no moss, we're not going to go for this." Well, I, I, if they were coming at this in, in a position of, of earnestness, 
then that could be applauded. But here's a problem with the Republicans on this issue. It's sort of a pox on both their houses, if you will. As you noted, we blew past the debt limit, and that's, in essence, how much Congress authorizes the Treasury Department to borrow to keep the government running. Um, we blew through that at $28.4 trillion on midnight of July 31st. Now, since then, how did the Senate react to that? Well, 10 days later, 69 senators, including 19 Republicans, Mm -hmm. passed that Infrastructure Improvement and Jobs Act that I just spoke about that includes $500 billion in new spending and $250 billion in deficit spending. Um, So I'm not sure whether or not the GOP leadership, well, certainly the 19 GOP senators in the Senate, if they have a leg to stand on when it comes to opposing uh, hiking the, the deficit limit, or I'm sorry, yes, the deficit ceiling, um, or the debt ceiling, I'm sorry. Um, so I would just note that whereas I wholeheartedly support an effort by either party to use the debt ceiling as leverage to get control over our spending, um, I'm not sure whether or not at least Senate Republicans are in any place to be preaching on that score. Yeah, no, understood. But again, it comes down to a vote. My hope is that uh, Republicans understand that uh, voting this this in is really it, it's uh, hurting the national security of our country, among other things, and creating programs we don't need and uh, can't afford. So we should uh, use whatever leverage we can in order to avoid. Uh, this catastrophic vote or this catastrophic bill passing, in my opinion. I would not agree more, and please don't let my response uh, suggest that I allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. Um, I wholeheartedly support the Republicans playing hardball on this. I'll note as well, the Democrats don't really have any leverage. They have majorities in both the House and the Senate, and they have the White House. So if they can't blame the Republicans for inaction in this context. Right. Hey, before I let you go, I would like to just get your thoughts or reaction to uh, Biden's speech yesterday. Outrageous. I can't believe it. So yeah. he, in essence, he, he, he's ordered OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, um, to create regulations immediately. Uh, that require all businesses with more than 100 employees uh, to have all their employees uh, either vaccinated or tested weekly. Uh, To be clear, I have no problems if private enterprise, private businesses require that of their employees. But for the government to do so on a flimsy statutory basis, um, and that's the the, the key takeaway message here, this is uh, based on as expansive and implausible a statutory interpretation as the eviction moratorium was that just got slapped down by the Supreme Court. So I, I do expect in no time um, for this to get entangled in the courts. And I'll also mention that OSHA, the agency that was tasked with implementing this, um, doesn't have nearly the resources to take on this administrative lift. So from a number of angles, it's sort of a, a puffery. You know what, I, and I agree with that, and I, I think he's looking through a, a political lens on this. He, I think he cares too much about the health care of American people. I think he's more concerned about his, his own political survival, and I think this is an effort to shore up what's happened to Afghanistan, change the focus, uh, change the scent, as they say, and, uh, and move on politically. So we'll see how this all goes. William, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. I get Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, Michael Cannon. He is the uh, Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show. 
on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of 1st Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app from the Choice Social US website. ChoiceSocial.us is the website. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Katie Rogers from the uh, F- Foundation for Government Accountability. We have with us Michael Cannon, Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back, Bob. Thank you. Hey, did you see the speech yesterday from Joe Biden? I didn't see the speech. I read about it. Uh-huh. Uh, any reaction at all? Well, the idea that the federal government can just require employers to uh, uh, vaccinate, require employers to require their employees to vaccinate is really troubling. I am uh, a libertarian who thinks there are some circumstances under which the government can legitimately, uh, defensively mandate vaccinations. However, I don't think this meets that test, and I think it could actually be counterproductive what the president is trying to do. Yeah, to me, uh, my opinion is that uh, it's not based on science at all, in my opinion. It's certainly, there's no emergency right now, because if there's an emergency, that should have been declared 15, 16, 18 months ago. So uh, to me, it looks like just a political play in order to 
change the scent from Afghanistan and to uh, assert his own authority. I, I think this all this whole thing is going to be declared invoke invite uh, in declared unconstitutional by by the court system. So I'm not sure about a constitutional challenge. Uh, however, the authority that they're asserting is under uh, the st statute that governs the occupational safe and healthy safe uh, occupational safety and health administration uh, or OSHA and it whenever OSHA regulates there's about a 50/50 chance that the court is going to overturn what they're doing mm -hmm. because OSHA uh, the folks at OSHA just love regulatory overreach and so there are already legal scholars who are saying that this assertion of OSHA's authority, authority probably well exceeds what Congress authorized them to do. Right. And, uh, and so it's not likely to uh, survive a challenge, but we really don't know the details yet. The president just announced this. They haven't promulgated a rule or uh, a proposed rule or a final rule, which is the process you have to go through to... Uh, to assert that authority in the first place. And uh, I, I think that this is... The fact that the administration is trying to mandate that employers vaccinate, uh, uh, require their employees to vaccinate, tells us that they really haven't learned any of the lessons of the past 18 months, that the federal, gov the federal government has botched this, and in so many ways, and caused a lot of people who might have been open-minded about vaccines mm -hmm. to oppose the idea. And I think that this mandate uh, or attempt to mandate vaccines could backfire and cause a lot of people who might otherwise be open to the idea to refuse to vaccinate. Yeah, I think that's right on, Michael, in my, in my opinion. In fact, you know, we, there's a couple kinds of power we read about when we study about organizational behavior. One is personal power, and that means that irrespective of the job that we have or the role that we assume in an organization, that we have influence, greater influence than, uh, than others, whereas uh, position power is basically do it because I told you to, so because I'm the boss. Well, that's what he's reverted to. He has no personal power, so he's re relying strictly on position power. And I think he's going to find out that the American people don't have a sense of humor about this. If you want to change people's behavior, you have to convince them that, uh, that it's in their interest. And to do that, you have to convince them that they, you have their interest at heart. And when you assert that you have the power to just command them to obey... Uh, that's going to provoke a, a reaction. Some people will obey. Some people you know, trust Joe Biden, and they will. Uh, but they've probably already vaccinated. That's right. That's right. The, the the people that he has to reach are people who are skeptical of him, skeptical of government, generally skeptical of 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 these vaccines. And when you try to mandate some something like this. You send the signal that you know you don't think you're able to persuade people, and uh, and and that 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 can end up making the mandate counterproductive because it can harden people's opposition to the idea. Of that. Absolutely, Michael. In fact, uh, one of the lies that uh, 
uh, President uh, Biden told us that, uh, hey, you know what, now that the FDA has approved the vaccine, there is no reason why you shouldn't get vaccinated. Well, in the fine print, I've discovered, and I'm not sure that this is common knowledge, but uh, that, yes, it's true that a Pfizer vaccine has been approved, but it is not available. It is, uh, I've forgotten the name of it now, but uh, it is. But basically, the FDA said, well, look, or Pfizer said, look, the two are exactly the same, pretty much the same. You, it, since the uh, Cominardi, I've forgotten the name of it, but anyhow, since this one vaccine is not available, you should continue to use uh, the uh, current emergency vaccine. It is safe. Well, it turns out, of course, this is all based on liability right now because of the emergency use of the vaccine we currently have. There is no way that anybody can sue for the, what the damages that may occur as a result of using the vaccine. With the other vaccine, because it's for adults, they can sue. So it's basically Pfizer looking out its, after its own financial best interests. I'm one who doesn't like the idea of the government exempting manufacturers of any kind of medication from liability. Right. I think that's the way the government should be regulating medical products is by allowing you to bring suit against the manufacturer if that medical product injures you. I mean, that's pretty, uh, that, that's pretty straightforward, a basic uh, fundamental uh, and legitimate role of government. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and so that, that, that troubles me that, uh, that part of this whole vaccine development process troubles me uh, almost as much as the FDA holding up the vaccines and not letting people access them as early as they wanted to. Yeah, well, um, but I but we've covered this before, Bob, and I want to stress it again. Although I'm critical of this vaccine mandate and critical of some of the steps that have been taken in the uh, in the production of the vaccines, I'm very pro these vaccines. Yeah, and uh, and I think that they are the best thing that we can do to save lives during this pandemic. The side effects from these vaccines are minimal to non-existent. We we talked about my concerns with one of them with regard to my son. I still vaccinated him at age twelve, uh, and I'm glad that we did that. Uh, and and I think that uh, I hope that people who uh, oppose this vaccine mandate don't conflate. Uh, the, uh, the the folly of what Joe Biden is doing with the wisdom of vaccinating. Well said, Michael. We'll leave it at that. We'll give you the last word. I really appreciate your commentary on the show. Again, uh, Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the show, Michael. Anytime, Bob. Thank, thank you. Me. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Jonathan Butcher. He is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to do that and more. Right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. 
Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598 598- 3889, that's 598 3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598 3889, or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We were providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Katie Rogers, the Vice President of uh, State and Federal Affairs at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Right now we have with us Jonathan Butcher, the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Thank you, Jonathan. Tell us about the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., that uh, of all of the items that you just listed about personal responsibility and free markets, we are uh, also committed to those things as well as um, a strong national defense. Uh, I am the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Foundation, and we have uh, researched and uh, made a, made the case for um, uh, giving parents as uh, options in education for uh, several decades now. So uh, it's a uh, uh, working very hard to uh, help provide quality opportunities for children around the country. Yeah, doing great work. Always a go-to organization for me and, and my research. So uh, you wrote a column, Jonathan, uh, fact-checking the pundits as the new school year begins. Very appropriate, especially after the president's speech. Maybe you can tell us about it. Sure. Well, the first uh, fact check was that the head of the uh, American Federation for Teachers, one of the largest teacher unions in the country, said that a huge amount of new money would be required in order for schools to reopen and get children back behind their desks. And in fact, lots of money was promised by Washington and, and even delivered. We're talking up to $200 billion, mm. which is nearly triple what they give schools annually anyway, but they gave $200 billion to schools for COVID relief, and local schools had only spent about 180 of that. So they spent virtually, um, I mean, a, a small fraction of it. They spent a, a, a tiny amount. Uh, 180 was left, is, is what I mean. 180 had been unspent, and uh, yet schools uh, still opened. And uh, so, so this idea that money was required, if it was necessary, schools certainly didn't spend it. 
Yeah, that's just what a, what a shame and what a waste indeed. It looks like the Biden administration is kind of looking towards the uh, teachers' unions in order to get uh, uh, to define health care uh, uh, policy within the schools. Well, and that's a, a bit of a trend here because the teacher union has, uh, we, we saw similar uh, uh, things were uncovered earlier this year um, when it came to masks and, and opening schools. Look, the, the American Federation for Teachers and the NEA simply set uh, unreasonable expectations for uh, reopening schools because they knew that, that most uh, local and state lawmakers couldn't meet it. And uh, they made it virtually impossible, and especially in places like Philadelphia and Chicago and L.A., where children had already been behind their peers nationally when it came to achievement, they made it basically impossible for those students to get back to class. Even in some cases, like Philadelphia and Chicago, uh, di disregarding local district um, uh, officials who called teachers to go back to class, and they simply said no. Yeah, you know, uh, they first it's not they have a monopoly pretty much on public education. Unfortunately, right now, you had mentioned. Charter schools, I happen to serve on the board of an organization that uh, uh, sponsors charter schools here in Florida. It's a major opportunity for school choice. What, in your opinion, should uh, we be doing in a perfect world? What would it look like uh, going forward from, from here, uh, considering what's going on in our public education systems? Well, I think the, the biggest thing that state lawmakers around the country should be doing is looking to states like Florida, Florida and Arizona, uh, where there is a robust charter school sector. There are private school scholarship opportunities, as well as education savings accounts. I think the Gardner scholarships in Florida, as well as the education savings accounts in Arizona, which, of course, are, are, are you know very similar to each other, where parents can uh, use the money that otherwise was set aside for their child on a variety of educational expenses. That's really the future of education, where parents get to customize their child's learning experience. Uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Missouri are among the states that uh, created new education savings account opportunities in the last legislative session, so earlier this year. So I, I think the future is bright. The future is bright. But more states need to be looking for these kinds of answers now because parents are not satisfied with uh, what's going on between masks, uh, critical race theory in schools. I mean, there are any number of reasons that, that parents uh, are uh, are frustrated right now with what's what's going on with assigned schools. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, they had a great opportunity last year to understand what's really going on in the classroom because many kids were learning at home, and I'm sure many parents were appalled when they saw the content of the curriculum that uh, was being uh, broadcast over the uh, Internet. So... Uh, for me, it would be just money follows the kid. Uh, if, in fact, the parent wants to send a ch their child to a, a private school or a charter school or a public school, they should be able to choose the school of their choice. Most certainly. And I think there are a number of different ways uh, that that can happen, a number of different forms that that takes. I mean, uh, again, Florida and Arizona also have open enrollment laws where you can choose a public school other than your assigned school, hmm. um, as well as the tax credit scholarship uh, private school scholarship options, both in Florida and Arizona. Um, there are other states. Uh, Pennsylvania has a similar program. Um, it's the, these kinds of options, as well as education savings accounts, that should create really a landscape of different uh, opportunities for children. If the uh, unions consider the continue this draconian uh, behavior on their part and making demands and so forth, uh, literally, aren't they going to be hurting their own bargaining position going forward when it comes to people making choices about education? 
Well, here's the thing. I mean, as we look at what enrollment numbers look like at public schools around the country, we are seeing um, noticeable changes. There have been noticeable dips in public school enrollment in um, uh, states and large districts around the U.S., and I think that that's parents voting with their feet. I mean, I think that unions, uh, as, as well as other public school officials uh, in places like Denver and um, uh, Baltimore and, and elsewhere, really overplayed their hand by saying that uh, parents shouldn't move their children, shouldn't look elsewhere. Uh, Denver, in particular, released uh, uh, officials released statements like that. So uh, as you have parents simply saying, hey, look, we can create a learning pod with a small group of, um, of children, including our kids and other kids in our neighborhood or our kids' friends, and we're going to continue their education without the, the need of district uh, resources. I mean, that's a civil society solution that parents came up with last year. And so... As you have more parents doing that, I think that, uh, you know, you're, you're just going to find that the teacher unions will be, uh, they'll have uh, much, much less influence because there'll be fewer students in assigned schools. Yeah, that's uh, from your lips to God's ears, Jonathan. So uh, last question, any thoughts on uh, whether, what kind of impact Biden's speech, President Biden's speech may have had on the education system last night in the speech that he gave? I mean, this has been consistent really with their policies all along that have been increasingly restrictive and uh, have been uh, policies that for local parents, they need to be talking with their local school, their local principal, uh, looking to local health professionals, and then what the um, infection and transmission rates are in their areas. Um, a big national mandate really on anything when it comes to education is not going to be the right fit, right? right. It's it, There is no one-size-fits-all, especially when it comes to this very crucial overlap between uh, health policy and education policy. And so I think you need to have parents um, given more flexibility to decide how and where their children learn. Jonathan Butcher, again, Will Skillman Fellow in the Education at the Heritage Foundation. Heritage.org is the website, heritage.org. I hope you check it out. Jonathan, genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, K.D. Rogers. She's the Vice President of State and Federal Affairs at the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board and be looking forward to talk with Katie. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. You have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, 
and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Uh, among their policies is creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, The FGA. We have with us Katie Rogers. She is the Vice President of State and Federal Affairs at the Foundation for Government Accountability. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. It's glad to be here. Oh, thank you, Katie. So uh, maybe you could span a little. Tell us about the Foundation for Government Accountability and what it's all about. Yeah, Bob, you summarized it well. So we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit um, or policy organization. And really, simply put, to summarize what we do and what our mission is, we truly believe that work is a miracle. And we work in the states in D.C. to advance uh, public policy reforms to get people back to work, to get them off government dependency. So we've got a, a couple of barriers to success with that, of course, with, with the uh, higher payout to, for unemployment. So ha- what are we doing right now? And I refer to we because I'm on the board. What are we doing right now to address some of the things that have been happening in the last year or so since uh, the Biden presidency? Well, Bob, I would, uh, I'll ask you a question. Have you seen any signs in your area for help wanted on small businesses? <laughs> yes, absolutely I have. Everybody's looking for employ- employers. It, it, it really is. It's true. And I think across the country, everybody can identify with that. You see help wanted signs everywhere. And that's because we've been paying people for the last year and a half to sit at home and not work. And the, the Biden administration instituted uh, or continued an additional federal unemployment bonus that literally is paying people to sit at home. And so really that's what we've been working on for the last year and a half is to make sure that federal unemployment bonus expired. And I, you know, I'm sure most people have heard the good news that those bonuses expired this week. So on Monday they expired. And really that's what, that's what we've been focusing on, you know, going back to our, our mission to that, that people, you know, that we believe that work is a miracle. We want to get people back to work. We want to make sure businesses can stay open across the country. And that's been one of our main priorities. And we're just really, really happy and glad to see that uh, that we're no longer going to, as a country, going to be paying people to sit uh, sit at home and not work. Yeah. So I, I'd like you to expand a little bit on uh, work as a miracle, because I, I think it's important that, uh, you know, certainly... Uh, so, so much of our identities, so much of our sense of self-esteem has to do with the contributions we're making at a place of work or whatever we're doing. No, a hundred percent. I mean, it gives us purpose. It's, it allows us to provide for ourselves and our families. 
Um, and, and we've seen examples of that all over the country where we've passed you know, common sense reforms to get people off government dependency, get them back to work. And really, there's there's case after case of folks realizing the value of having that that purpose and that work. And, and without that, you know, without that common uh, that common ground of, of everybody working to, to you know, advance their, their place in the world. Uh, then, then you see that kind of dependency, and you can see all kinds of, of trickle down effects from from folks not working. Yeah, uh, Katie, do we measure the uh, results? Do we measure the impact of uh, the Foundation for Government Accountability programs? Yeah, we absolutely do. We're really big on that. We're really big on making sure that we've got impactful wins that really impact people's lives. And so we've got um, we've got a full research department and a policy department, and a lot of what they're dedicated, their work is dedicated is to tracking the results. Um, actually, we've got a great recent example of tracking the results of some of the states that opted out early of the federal UI bonus program. You saw that 26 states opted out of that federal bonus program. The, the governors really showed leadership and said, we're no longer going to take this federal money to keep people you know, out of work. Right. And we've tracked some of the results there. And it's amazing. I mean, just that the people going back to work, the jobs being filled, there's an absolute correlation between um, some of the steps that they that these leaders have made on these policies and getting people back to work. So really big, big on tracking results and making sure that we know that some of the policies that we work on have an actual impact. So we've we've seen the uh, the benefits expire as you'd mentioned as of this this last week, and there's 10.9 million jobs available, openings available. I guess I think is the number that I saw. Uh, what kind of an impact do you think this is going to have on uh, the workforce? I think it's going to be huge. I think we're going to, and and that's something that we will track to make sure that we we show these actual results from from these bonuses expiring. But it's going to be huge. You're going to see people going back to work because they have to. And because they're no longer going to get paid to sit at home. And so I think it's going to be fantastic. We're going to track that. But the work isn't done. I mean, there's still calls in Congress to extend these types of bonuses. You see in blue states, a lot of these these governors weren't happy with the fact that these bonuses expired. And so from our perspective, the work certainly isn't done. We're going to continue to push out um, the facts and to show that paying people to sit at home doesn't help the economy and, and we've got to get back on track. So it's, it's something that it's a, an effort that is not going away and we're going to continue to work on that. Yeah. So Katie, I, I know that uh, the, you work through the state legislatures and uh, in, in an effort to you know, help them prepare for uh, proposing legislation that's effective. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your process. Yeah, we, we've got an interesting uh, process. We actually, uh, we've got people on the ground in about 37 states, and we work with uh, with policymakers. We educate them, and we've got a really a 360-degree approach to working with policymakers in the states where instead of just writing white papers and dropping them on their desks and walking away and hoping that those those policies and the and the uh, the logic there sinks in we actually work hand in hand with policymakers to 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 take them from good concept to actual execution and so uh, we've got a, a very comprehensive government affairs program 
and we've got folks on the ground in those states. And we found that that's really effective and it kind of sets us apart from other similarly situated organizations. So it gives them the support. A lot of these legislatures walk into a situation where they've not proposed or been a part of the legislative process in the past. You actually provide the coaching that allows them to, first of all, ask questions and understand, but second of all, have effective means for going to their fellow legislators to propose legislation and get it through. Bob, we found... 100%. We found that these guys want to do the right thing. They want to do a good job, but without, I mean, they're part-time in in most states, as you know, these guys are part-time legislators. Uh, They can't be experts at anything. And so they're really looking for a partner to walk hand in hand with them, show them the good policies, explain them, give them the tools to pass these good policies in the states. And that's what we do. So I would imagine that some of these policymakers who, who you've relate, created uh, relationships with actually not only go from uh, the, the legislature, state legislature, perhaps onto the state senate or even to, to uh, uh, federal positions like the uh, congressman. Absolutely. That's part of the model, the model of success. And we've seen that play out where we've, we've worked and, and built these relationships with state policymakers. They've been exposed to our, our good reforms and our good solutions in the state. They've worked on them. They advance into either statewide office or positions in Congress. And then we're able to then work on federalizing those good state reforms. And so we, we've seen a lot of success in passing these reforms in the state, building relationships with those policymakers, and then federalizing. Because, of course, that's... Uh, that's always the the best next step. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really all about relationships and, and gaining their trust, making sure they know that we, we will always tell them the truth and give them good solutions. Uh, again, and uh, any impact on a federal level? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, we, uh, we had a, a, a really robust, successful four years uh, under the Trump administration, working with them to pass really great reforms on the regulatory level. And we've pivoted a little bit. Obviously, we're working with our allies in, in Congress, making sure they're equipped with good solutions. I think that the expiration of the unemployment insurance bonus is a good example of some of the impact that we can still have on the federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we've had to pivot a little bit too, Bob, into defense. And you know, giving states the ability and the tools to push back on an overreaching federal government and Biden administration. And so it's twofold. We can still go on the offense, and you saw the result with the ex- uh, expiration of the UI bonus, but then also play defense at the same time. Yeah. Katie Rogers, again, Vice President of State and Federal Affairs, the Foundation for Government Accountability, outstanding organization. You can visit the website, thefga.org, thefga.org. You can also make a nice contribution uh, to the organization because all of this takes money. So, <laughs> Katie, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate Bob. Have Th- a good morning. You as well. Thank you. All right. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, on Monday, uh, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Larry Reed is the fa- and president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. He'll be joining us, as well as Jim McTagg, a former Barron's Washington Bureau, Bureau chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. Of course, we remember again tomorrow, uh, 9-11, and uh, remember the horrific attack on our nation 20 years ago. And we will never forget. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>